This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Simon J. Potter, author of the book Wireless Internationalism and Distant Listening, Britain, Propaganda, and the Invention of Global Radio, 1920-1939. Simon, welcome to New Books Network. Hello, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in London and then I studied uh, at Oxford. Um, I had my first job in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, in Galway. And then I came to Bristol. And now I'm professor of history at the University of Bristol, professor of modern history. And I'm the head of department as well, which has been an interesting experience in, in recent months in particular, <laughs> uh, as you can imagine. What was it that led you to write this book? A lot of my work, I think, has been united by this desire to see how the mass media worked in the context of empire in particular. And and when I really started off, it was looking at how the newspaper press reported the British Empire in the in the early 20th century. And I think I just started off down that road and, and have carried on. The, the more the more work I've done, the more I've been struck by how how relatively little historical research is done on on the history of the mass media. Um, and when I got into to thinking about the BBC and radio, I realised that apart from the official histories and and the histories that have been written by a lot of people who used to work for the BBC, there's been relatively little um, sort of scholarly historical work. Um, and critical historical work. So I've just found that there's been so many opportunities to, to go and look at the archives and think afresh. It's not a it's not a crowded field. You can you can do what you want and and write some really original stuff. So it's really kept me going, uh, looking at the history of, of the mass media. It's you talk about this in terms of being a historical topic, and it obviously is, but one of the things I was struck by when I was reading your book is how relevant it all seems in some ways it has it has a timeliness that is in you know arguably very unfortunate in a lot of respects because what you have in in the book was this story of how you have this very optimistic sense at the beginning of the period in the in the early 1920s as radio starts to become this mass product that it's going to bring people together it's going to create a new unity it's going to get past all the divisions of, of that that 
people had so recently you know shed blood over and, and how all those dreams gradually you know kind of you know f- uh sifted away and exposed this you know rather uh grim reality uh by the end of it where radio becomes this this you know very different tool in very different mm. hands mm. yeah i as you, as i sat down and researched and, and wrote the book you i couldn't help but be struck by by those parallels and I really didn't set out to write something that had that strong contemporary resonance. Um, and I, I hope it hasn't changed what I've written. I hope it's what I've written is really true to the, the time and the, and the sources. But, but you can't help but be struck when you read about people in the League of Nations in the 1920s writing about the, the perils of false news and how, how they needed to prov- provide some sort of alternative, authentic supply of news to deal with all the lies and the, and the propaganda that were beginning to circulate. The, the resonances are so strong in that, that sort of optimism about how a new medium is operating. Um, so you know, we've seen it with, with the way people thought the internet was going to transform the world and transform life for people in in the Middle East, uh, the Arab Spring, how then very rapidly those very utopian, optimistic hopes for what a a new medium can deliver give way to a much more cynical um, and, and less optimistic view of the world, really. And as you explain in your uh, first chapter, it's not something that was unrealistic. I mean, for one thing, you're talking about this novel technology, novel in a way that in, in some respects the internet was not. I mean, the idea of instantaneous communication uh, through radio to a, a mass audience was something that had n- never been really experienced in that way before. Mm-hmm. And especially coming in the aftermath of the First World War when there was this, you know, new resolution to uh, avoid making those mistakes to try to create a better world it, it seemed like the 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 moment had really you know, was was really ripe for something like not not just radio but that attitude towards radio mm, mm. I, I think it's really impossible to to exaggerate how important the legacy of the first world war is for the people who are first starting to make radio and also who are listening to radio so so many of the people who play big roles in the development of radio have themselves got a military background so many of them have lost sons in the war so many of the listeners are people who have some level of technical expertise which they might have learnt in the war uh, so many of them are former servicemen and and so many of them are are women and children who've you know seen the war as well experienced it through their families um, and social circles so it pervades i think that early that early history of the war um oh, sorry the early history of broadcasting i think what is also really really clear is that contemporaries had been used to telegraphy and you know you could send if you had the money you could send a message almost instantaneously across the world using the telegraph system that was really a victorian invention but what they cannot stop marveling at for for years is that this technology allows them to hear genuine human voices and there's something almost otherworldly about this there's something mystical and you know, for so so many of the accounts of of listening to radio, early early accounts of listening to radio, and and some of them are there in that that first that first part of my book. So many of those accounts emphasise just how emotional 
this experiences of listening to these distant voices and um, very often how they evoke memories of the war, evoke memories of other places. Um, it's it's a very it's a very emotional appeal that radio has, which which other media up to that point don't really have in the same way. It's also a medium that, as you make clear over the course of the book, is one in which the question of boundaries is one that they're wrestling with. And I was thinking about how that's another theme that seems to uh, uh, run through your book, which is how there the notion initially of how this is going to be a medium that transcends boundaries, and then they find it necessary to establish boundaries because it's getting <laughs> increasingly chaotic. Mm. And then by the end of it, you're describing how these boundaries are being uh, used and abused in, in ways to control information and to get out certain uh, stories, narratives, uh, propaganda, let, let, you know, because that, that is a, a, book, a word that features prominently in your book, to uh, try to uh, shape opinion and to uh, influence events. Mm. And it comes back into the way, in a way to the point you were making at the beginning. Um, thinking about this as a new medium and what, what people people think it can do. So, you know, we, a lot of the histories that have been written about radio are from this perspective of you get, you get these big institutions that manage radio on a national basis. So in Britain, you have the BBC. In, in the States, you've got NBC. You've got these big national networks in, in the States. And a lot of the history that gets written says, well, these are the end product. And this is what radio is all about in the same way that a lot of the, the histories of, of newspapers would be about big national newspapers. But we're now living in this era when actually that doesn't seem to be the end point. And all sorts of people are saying, well, we probably won't have national network television playing such a prominent role in our lives for much longer. We won't have big national newspaper titles playing that role for very much longer. The, the Internet is bringing us to a very different media environment. And it's one that probably would have is a lot more familiar to, to, to an earlier period, or it's a lot more akin to an earlier period where there's much more fluidity, that it's not dominated by big operators, big institutions, big national organizations. So early listeners to radio in Britain, for example, there's no BBC, there's the first stations are not in Britain. The first stations that people are listening to in Britain are broadcasting from the Netherlands. They're broadcasting from France. Then you get some stations starting in Britain. But if, if you have a radio set, you have to sort of see what you can find. You piece it together and you, you listen to uh, a London station one night, something in The Hague the next night, and something in Paris the night after. And that's all you can do. So... Um, you know, it's it's a very very different world, and it, it's not one dominated by by the big institutions that, that that are familiar from to us today, but are also dominate a lot of the historical writing. That really comes across in your first chapter because what I it was interesting how you're describing how in that first chapter how while you're simultaneously getting the uh, you know, emergence of radio as a commercial medium, as a broadcast medium. You're also describing how it goes from the uh, the the uh, hobby of specialists who assemble their crystal sets to something where all uh, a person has to do is to buy a set, uh, plug it in, and they can tune it in. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain it, it what was going on during that period in the 1920s in terms of how when you still had a largely unformed 
uh, market for radio, where this idea of internationalism uh, was was seeking to take radio, and how were they trying to uh, achieve it during that decade? Yeah, so, I mean, from the perspective of the listeners, I think in some ways, a lot of this early listening to, first of all, to, to radio nationally, but 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 for much longer for those who want to listen to international stations, it's you, know, you could think about it as a as a form of, of geek culture that this is something that enthusiasts pour their time into. They read huge amounts about how you can build a radio set, how you can pick up foreign stations, and, and what you're going to hear and how you can make sense of it. So, um, in in the states, the the DXs, the people who who are distance freaks and want to listen to these distant stations, they're really famous. But but you have this all over the place. You know, in all the countries in the in the twenties and thirties, you have this phenomenon. And if you have plenty of money, in the nineteen twenties, you can buy a set which would pick up from Britain a large numbers of stations across Europe. But but most people don't have lots of money, and they actually don't want to use radio for that purpose. What they want to do is sit in their attic or their garden shed or in the basement and build a set for themselves. And they want to to build it, work out how to make it better, buy new components. And what a lot of people who are who are critical at the time say is, well, these geeks, they, they're not really interested in what they hear. They just want to build the sets and prove they've picked something up. And people at the BBC are very dismissive of um, American DXs in particular because they say, well, they just want us to send them a card to prove that they've picked us up. They don't care what we, we broadcast. And we're broadcasting some of the best programs in the world. They don't care. They just want to hear London and that's that's it. They're done. What, what then happens more in the 30s is that... that radio in general but but particularly uh, distant listening to, to foreign stations becomes much easier and people listen on loudspeakers rather than headphones it comes into the living room rather than being stuck in the attic and everybody in the family wants to wants to have their say about what to listen to and i think contemporaries start to argue in the 30s much more genuinely this is something where people are experiencing a foreign culture. They're connecting across borders. They're they're becoming more internationally minded. Um, there's a fantastic survey, coincidentally done in Bristol in the in the late 1930s of of listening to radio, and it talks about you know, people living in quite a poor part of Bristol. Uh, waking up in the small hours of the morning, having a small child, knock everybody knocking everybody's doors in the house to get them up so everyone can listen to a big fight from America, a big boxing match from America. It becomes something that you know, broadens people's horizons according to the people who conduct that, that, uh, that survey. And, and for the first time, people in you know, a, a very poor part of Bristol, they start listening to Europe, they start listening to America. It changes their view of the world they live in. That's something that you talk about in your book that isn't necessarily evident from the title, which is that it's not just a history of broadcasting, it's also a history of, of listening and defining mm. what listening is going to be. And, and that's where that, that international element comes in as well. Is this going to be something that is going to be narrowly defined by a particular country or a particular culture, or is this going to be something that we're going to you know use in, in a very broad sense to connect across geography and, and, and bring all these different people together. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, and I, I felt as I wrote it, I, I pushed I pushed a fair way out of my comfort zone um, with with the book and and thinking about the history of sound and the history of listening, thinking about these themes in in, in cultural history that I hadn't really thought about much before. But but it, I really did become fascinated with how you can you can start to piece together what radio sounded like at this time, how people listened, what they did. So there's a there's a great story, for example, they're talking about um, Vatican Radio, first broadcast by the Pope, and they're talking about workers in the street in Quebec City uh, getting down on the, taking off their hats and getting down on their knees when the Pope is heard on a, on a loudspeaker in the streets over Radio Vatican. It really changes um, the way people... Uh, interact with radio it changes you know they're, they're trying to get to grips well what does it mean if i'm digging a hole in the road and suddenly the pope comes on the loudspeaker <laughs> how should i act um it, it it's a it's an area of cultural history i i'd never really thought about before but but i found really interesting uh you, you just reminded me of that uh monty python sketch where that in the episode where whenever the queen was tuning in they'd all had to suddenly stop what they were doing and stand up yeah. and play the you know god save the queen on the radio i think that was more documentary than comedy really <laughs> <laughs> so what are the forces that, that that start to change things in the early 1930s? How do you go from this optimistic vision of, you know, where you're going to have a League of Nations radio, where you're going to have you know, internationalism, to where you start seeing more uh, of, of a national definition of radio? And what are the, some of the forces driving it? Mm. So, I mean, I think the the rise of these big institutions like the US networks like the BBC and and their counterparts in in Europe that 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 plays a role because these institutions are jealous of their own domestic audiences and they want to control the terms on which other broadcasters access those those domestic audiences so also these networks are all building more and more powerful transmitters and particularly in Europe that creates big problems because Everyone wants the biggest, most powerful transmitters. How do you stop them interfering with each other? How do you how do you um, allow people to listen to distant stations when you're pumping out these very powerful broadcasts uh, nationally? But 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 they do manage that. They 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 um, they make agreements about using transmitters, but also there are all of these quite complex program exchanges which take place. So so broadcasters take programs from each other they share them around and they they sort of give each other curated access to their audiences and that is seen as being something very healthy and positive and, and useful for everyone I, th- I think much more what what very clearly changes the way that radio is being used is what happens in germany with the rise of the nazi party what happens in italy with how mussolini uses radio following the the invasion of abyssinia and what happens in China with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and, and the use that Japan makes of radio in that, in that invasion. So you can really see very strongly after, after that, that quite quickly broadcasters but also governments become very much aware that even if it's, it's a minority of people who listen to foreign radio stations, the potential weapon that that is giving different 
powers as a as a means to distribute propaganda, undermine foreign governments. So so Nazi radio propaganda plays a big role in destabilizing the Austrian state, in uh, stoking resentment in Czechoslovakia among state and Germans. The democratic powers are very aware that even if a lot of what even the Nazis broadcast on radio, which can seem quite innocuous to many at the time, and you know there are these examples of you know British observers saying, well, actually, American radio news commentators are much worse than German Nazis because the Americans are sort of stoking everything up for <laughs> um, a popular audience and trying to make everybody think that everything's going to be a disaster, whereas the Nazis are very calm and, and dispassionate. So, you know, contemporaries are worried about some strange things from our perspective, but more and more they, they come to appreciate that, you know, for the fascist powers in particular, radio is this potentially extremely powerful weapon. And if, if a big war breaks out, everybody knows it's going to be rapidly mobilized as, as a weapon. And, and it really leads to, to a change in the way, the way governments and broadcasters approach, approach the medium. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about radio in very much of an international context, but your book focuses specifically on how Great Britain was approaching this and how they dealt with it. And what you do in your book is is very interesting because you you're, uh, you're, you describe you provide a tale that, especially for people who today are familiar with BBC's uh, oftentimes very impressive uh, global footprint, how they were really, in, in so many ways, playing a game of catch-up, and there was these constant mm. concerns about it. But you also talk about a tale of state involvement that pushes back against the standard narrative. You reference uh, uh, in your book the the official history that was written and how they, they it was one that perhaps provided a more optimistic picture, shall we say, of BBC's independence than, as you mm. demonstrate, was really the case. Mm, yeah, the, the the documents are incredibly interesting, and and once you become once you've done a lot of work on the archives and you start to look back at the official histories, you can you can see what's been left out, what's what's been read, what's been missed, but also where where subtle changes of interpretation can be really important. Um, and what what I took away from reading the the archives was that while in a lot of the official histories. BBC officers are seen as being the champions of BBC independence and vigorously standing up to uh, the attempts of government to to exert some control over over what the BBC is doing. In reality, the BBC is primarily driven in the 1930s by a desire to keep its monopoly over British broadcasting. And a lot of people who work at the BBC, they don't see civil servants as the enemy they, they work with them very closely and they, they want to they want to preserve many elements of the BBC's day-to-day independence but but they're willing to work with official guidance and where that really um, uh, 
becomes crucial is in the debates about the BBC's establishment of an Arabic language service. Um, and when you actually look back at the original documents, it's very clear that the Foreign Office, when the BBC starts that Arabic language service, the Foreign Office wants to make sure that that service serves British interests, that it contradicts fascist propaganda, and it presents a positive view of Britain to the Middle East. And the Foreign Office very clearly intervenes to shape what the BBC broadcasts in that service. And the best example of that is the um, the Arab revolt against British rule in Palestine. The British Foreign Office is very keen to restrict coverage of executions by the British colonial government of Palestinians. Um, and it intervenes effectively to seriously reduce BBC coverage of um, of that of that uh, violent suppression of the Arab revolt. So, so the way the way in typical British fashion and typical BBC fashion, the way this gets resolved is that there's an unwritten gentleman's agreement. They call it a gentleman's agreement between the BBC and the Foreign Office. Very deniable. The details are not clear uh they're very hard to to uh, recapture from the from the documents to most people at the time they would not have been obvious at all but there clearly is a gentleman's agreement between the bbc and the foreign office that the foreign office will have the ability to shape what the bbc broadcasts particularly in the arabic service that Development of the Arabic service, which you know is very you know, fascinating discussion, though comes at the tail end of the period that you're describing. What you talk about in terms of getting there was this interesting sense, this interesting reluctance. It, it, it seemed as though you describe this very complicated tale that's defined by issue questions of funding, uh, questions of responsibility. You have a, a BBC, which, as you pointed, is, is is very eager to protect its monopoly, but it, it does it, it does so in a very unaggressive way. It, it, it wants to protect its monopoly, but at the same time, it doesn't want to do so in a way that might very well trigger the sort of intervention that it's hoping to avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very much I think the BBC is trying it's trying to get the British government to take radio seriously a lot of the time and and in some ways I think the period up to that that sort of launching of the Arabic service in 1938 the, the, the government is a reluctant party to get involved and it's the BBC who's saying we need money, we need state funds we need advice and guidance and you need to take seriously particularly what the Germans are doing so um, again, previous historians have written a lot about Italian broadcasting from a station called Radio Bari in the south of Italy, which was broadcasting in Arabic from a very early stage and was really trying to stir up resentment and revolt against Britain and France in their colonial and semi-colonial possessions in the Middle East. But I think the thing that's really struck me is that while Bari is important and the Italians, what the Italians are doing is important, it's what Nazi Germany is doing, which is so worrying to the BBC. And when you, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is having a look in a bit more detail at, at the, just the sophistication of the Nazi international broadcasting efforts. It is so well resourced and it is so well done that the BBC really does fear that, that this is what international listeners are going to tune into. And it's giving Nazi Germany a very powerful uh, voice globally, and they're constantly trying to persuade 
the government to take it seriously. And you also describe as well how it, this is not just a question of the BBC. You, you, you're talking about the Foreign Office, and they have this you know, interesting operation, the Foreign Office News Department, which you, you mentioned. You don't go into mm. too much detail about it. But it, it, it points to just how there was this sense that comes across in your book as to even when they're aware of the threat, they don't quite know how best to respond to it. And then, of course, there's that financial constraint. You know, we're talking about this is the 1930s, the Great Slump. There's not a lot of you know, spare pounds going around to fund uh, the construction of transmitters, the uh, investment in infrastructure necessary to have the sort of global service that the uh, that the Third Reich was perfectly willing to spend the money to achieve. Yeah. And, I mean, again, talking about the legacies of the First World War, we've already sort of spoken about how important the First World War is in all of this. So, at the time, a lot of people believed that America had been brought into the First World War by British propaganda and that, that Germany had been defeated by British propaganda. Probably not true, but it's it really, it really shapes contemporary thinking about this. And there is even an explicit foreign office ban throughout this period on doing anything that could be construed as propaganda in the United States because the British government thinks this is the thing that's most likely to promote American isolationism. So so the BBC in this period is treading this very delicate line because the BBC's international broadcasting is all in English up until 1938 and it's done through something called the Empire Service, which I love, and <laughs> the pre the pregenitor of the BBC World Service. Um, but the Empire Service is hugely interesting because it's all in English. Even when they're planning it in the early 1930s, they know that the majority of listeners will be Americans because the Americans all speak English and they've got the best access to radio sets anywhere in the world and they're the biggest concentration of English speakers anywhere in the world. So you know it's actually going to be Americans who listen to this. But you call it the Empire Service. You never consciously address Americans. You never produce programs aimed at Americans. You know the Foreign Office will haul you over the coals if you do anything that seems like propaganda aimed at America. But yet it's the key and the largest audience for the Empire Service. And it goes to how they were able to sell it, in a sense. You can't sell the notion of propaganda, but the idea of connected to the empire. And I, I thought that was a really fascinating uh, integration yeah. that you just, that you detail, which is that they can use this purpose, which fits with the BBC mission, but at the same time, they're, you know, uh, they're adapting it and, and, and using it for a, what ultimately turned out to be a, a much more uh, valuable purpose, which is, yeah. you know, getting the, the, the British message out to a non-British audience. Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as the Second World War uh, breaks out, immediately the planning is, well, how do we still not look like we're doing propaganda to America, but we're still going to use the Empire Service to bring help bring America onto our side. So as soon as the war breaks out, they get a Canadian to come over, completely redesign what they're doing. Supposedly, then, they have a service aimed at Canada. Everyone knows it's primarily aimed at America. Um, and it's all in the context of how you can persuade Americans of the virtues of the British case in the war without doing something that looks like overt propaganda. We've been talking primarily in terms about, you know, the, the sort of the chronological evolution here. Uh, but that really is only one aspect of your book. You also spend a part of your book talking specifically about the Empire Service. You also talk about how the BBC 
as a service, once it's established and, and as it matures, presents news for overseas listeners. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that. Did it, Was it a different presentation than it was for, say, domestic listeners? And, and, and how did they consider... Uh, and, and what sort of uh, image did they present to the world? Did, did they go for the, 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 this uh, non-partiality, or was there something more subtle going on? Mm. The history of news, I think, is one of these things that sounds like a very niche and, again, geeky area. But I find it fascinating, and I think it's really important. And and uh, it, it explains so much about how the world works and how, how information that shapes politics and economics and and society and culture is is formed so so to me the really interesting story about the bbc and news in this period is that you know with radio you've potentially got this technology which transforms the entire world news environment um in the past all of the the world's exchanges of news has been sewn up by these big powerful companies like the associated press in the states and like reuters in britain Radio comes in and it potentially destroys all those monopolies and would allow this very different, freer interchange of news. It doesn't happen. And the old monopolies stay in place. And the reason why, I, I try and draw this out in the book, the reason why that happens in the British case is that the British government knows that it is in British interests to have a big, powerful company like Reuters dominating the, the world's news exchange because it sees itself as a British company. And the, the BBC is very reluctant to do anything that undermines Reuters because, again, it knows that Reuters is at heart a British company. Even though it's an international news agency, it's a British company and it serves some really important British uh, interests. So, so, th- so the story of, of news and radio in this period, I think, is, a, is of a failed revolution, something that, that, that doesn't change and instead the BBC takes a very hesitant and limited approach to to news in this period for overseas listeners and mostly what it's doing is trying to provide what it calls the lonely listener in the bush the sort of the homesick British expat dressed for dinner in boiling heat in an African colony in the middle of the the of the outback with no uh no access to other supplies of news it tries to provide that lonely listener in the bush with news from home that will you know make a uh, make that stiff upper lip tremble a little bit and make them remind them of home and what's going on in london and will provide them with with a really core service of essential news and what what so the BBC in this period also has representatives stationed in, in Canada and in other parts of the world. The, the, the representative in Canada is meant to liaise with all the American networks as well. He's writing back saying, this is drivel. This is rubbish. You know, the BBC should give us the most up-to-date news from all around the world. You should get the Americans and the Canadians to listen to the BBC. But the BBC doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to overturn the existing structures. And um, a lot of people in this period are aware that the BBC isn't really into journalism. It's, it's not doing something which competes with, with newspapers or it's not really doing something which competes with the news agencies. It's providing very limited digests of news to, to foreign listeners who can't get anything from anywhere else. And it's only, it's only really in the Second World War that they start to think, well, actually, 
we should be in the business of journalism and we should really start giving you something uh, compelling and fresh and difference and it still takes a long time after the war for for the BBC to get anywhere near the idea of providing an independent journalistic uh, source of news that that would be very much the way people in Britain would see the BBC is operating today and and the way many of the the listeners to the World Service and, and other BBC overseas services see the BBC today as this sort of independent journalistic uh, source of reliable news. Now, you have this book in which you're, t- you're talking about these efforts to establish this international broadcasting presence, but you also talk about the listener's experience. And, and, and that was, uh, in, in some ways, the, the most interesting chapter because you're trying to, as in, this is something you, you talked about a little bit uh, earlier in, in, in the podcast, which is this notion of what it was like to listen to it. And, mm. and you're, it seems to be such a Herculean task what you're doing because you're talking about how did listeners throughout the world that had that connection to British mm. broadcasting, how did they experience it? And as you've already alluded to, it's such a diverse experience. You're talking mm. about Canadians, you're talking about Americans, but you're talking about you know the lonely listener in the bush. You're talking about how people in Australia heard it. And as you're pointing out uh, in, the, in the chapter, you're talking about how people in Italy, Germany, uh, the uh, Near East are also listening to uh, the BBC and what they're taking from it. What was that experience like for the listeners and what were they taking from, from British broadcasting during this period? Mm. So I think what really strikes me as interesting is that historians are really bad at talking about listening. They're really bad at talking about sound. Um, they're pretty good when it comes to written sources and they've become... Uh, you know, reasonably okay when it comes to visual sources and pictures, but but when it comes to sound, they don't listen, and um, it's not a source that that they 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 use or think about critically. So, um, thinking about radio, even a lot of the history of radio doesn't actually think very much about listening the sound, which seems bizarre, but 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 it doesn't. Um, there's been a lot more of that recently, but a lot of it's about well, what what's it like to listen to to local radio or national radio. Um, and it sort of assumes that people can actually hear what's being broadcast, which when you get into international radio, you can't take for granted. So, so the book, when it talks about listening, it does look at that, that issue of what does it actually sound like? And, and radio listeners are, are putting up with terrible interference between stations. They're putting up with um, atmospheric problems, terrible noises which disrupt broadcasts. The people at the time in the 20s and the 30s who were who were designing radio programs and running radio stations, they don't fully understand how radio works as as a medium. They don't they don't really understand how long distance transmissions work. So, what you're seeing is that scientists are, are writing in popular radio publications are saying, look, we've just discovered that actually shortwave radio works this way, and all the stuff we've been doing before. That's why there are these terrible problems. Um, so, so people are trying to improve their own receiving sets. They're buying new bits. They're they're trying to deal with a constantly changing technology. So, a lot of the time, you're really having to make an effort to to, to listen to radio internationally. It's not it's not a background noise. It's something you're really straining to to hear. And you have there's there's a sort of assumption I think among many people that that means the people who who do listen to foreign stations are really motivated to do it. 
um, they're not doing it just for laughs. They're doing it often because they really, really want to either show they've got the technical skill or they generally want to hear um, a foreign station and, and listen to it quite carefully. The, the, other, the other sort of consequence of that is that radio broadcasters who are, are broadcasting for international audiences realize that only particular sort of programs are going to work. So apparently a lot of people who listen to international radio hated Sopranos because Soprano uh, vocals came across so badly on shortwave. There's a lot of discussion about how you can't have any complex program that involves overlapping voices or sounds. So if you're going to have a sports broadcast, if you're doing that for home listeners, you're going to include lots of crowd noises. You're going to try and have microphones on as close to the pitch as possible to pick up the sounds of the game. You're going to try and bring it to life through all the incidental sounds. Whereas for international broadcasting, if you do that, the problem is audiences might have no idea what's going on because it's so difficult to understand uh, using the, the, the technologies of the time. So, so it's quite distinctive what is being broadcast internationally in this period, and, it, and it's, it, it's quite unusual in a way. Um, I think what you'll also become very aware of is that by, by reading all these contemporary accounts of listening is that people really do pick and choose, and they do move a lot between different stations, and, and what a lot of the people who listen to international broadcasts really valued was being able to find exactly what they wanted. So where that becomes very important is, for example, in history of British broadcasting, there's this assumption that people only listen to the BBC in Britain. So, so the BBC has a domestic monopoly of broadcasting. There are no other stations apart from BBC stations operating on radio in Britain between the 1920s and the 1970s. And even on television, uh, the BBC has a monopoly until the mid-1950s. So there's an assumption a lot of the time that, you know, apart from the one or two pirate stations, British people are just listening to British stations. When you actually look at the, what people write at the time, it's really clear that British listeners are picking up stations all around the world. They're comparing what the BBC broadcasts to what European and American stations broadcasts, and they're, they're picking and choosing what, what suits them. And it's really important when it comes to what the BBC tries to do for international audiences and what, what other broadcasters try and do for international audiences because whereas at home the BBC thinks, well, yeah, you know, most people are just going to listen to BBC stations. We don't have to compete. We can give them what we think is best, not what they might want to hear. So we can give them lots of classical music when they really want to hear jazz and dance music. When it comes to international audiences, people have to say, well, actually, we have to give listeners what they want because otherwise they'll just tune into our rivals. Um, so there's much more of a willingness to cater to what audiences want uh, than there is in the case of, of domestic broadcasting in Britain, at least. And as you point out at the end of your book, you have that uh, alternative approach that the Germans are adopting, which is where they make listening to British broadcasting or, or really any foreign broadcasting something that is, uh, you know, a, crim a criminal act. Mm. And mm. It's, it's part of it is, it, it is a, a rather, uh, you know, telling capstone to the, the climax of this uh, move from internationalism towards more nationalistic vision mm. to where you started having, you know, states saying you can only listen to the, 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 our national broadcasters and no one else. And, and yeah. it, it struck me as sort of the, the, the flip side of what you've just described. 
and it, and it's a much broader phenomenon. I think I, I've seen as I've been researching the book and talking to other people, the you know in in colonial states, in places like French North Africa in the 30s, there's very there's very strict policing, especially of listening in public to foreign stations after after the Second World War in um, the satellite states of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, people are very um, harshly punished when they're found to be listening to, to foreign stations. And, and in, in the 30s, in the case of Nazi Germany, you, you read these accounts where you know, a, a, British, a British visitor reports that they've sat in a cafe and at that time you're allowed to listen to foreign broadcasts but you can't discuss them. So they say what happens is the BBC news comes on, the cafe owner turns the radio set to the BBC, everyone sits and listens in complete silence, and then when the news is over, they carry on talking as they had been before. Um, so people are listening, but they know that if they talk about it, they will be in trouble. And then, and then by the eve of the war, the Gestapo are knocking on people's doors when they hear the, BBC, the chimes of Big Ben uh, being carried through people's windows because they're listening to the BBC news in their homes, and that is now an offence. And mm. and the BBC, when it when it hears that, it takes Big Ben out the, the the chimes of the of the of the bell in the Houses of Parliament. It takes the noise of Big Ben out of the BBC broadcast for Germany because it doesn't want to get those German listeners in trouble. <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Um, at, at the next, the next things really, um, I've been involved in a big project about the global history of radio, and we're we're writing a book together, the people who were involved in that project, um, about about the global history of radio. And I think when I was writing this book on on wireless internationalism, I was very very aware that the only limitations of my own ability in terms of language and access to sources meant this was a book about global radio written from a British perspective. What I what I'm hoping we're gonna do in this in this other book is write something that's genuinely much more more global. Um, the other thing I'm I'm looking at the moment is we're 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 really now entering into the period where the centenary of of radio is is upon us. The the, the really early broadcasts it's now. Um, we, we've had, I think, the, the centenary of the first organised broadcast in Britain already, and we're we're heading very soon to the centenary of the BBC. So, I'm, I'm trying to write something that that takes stock of where we are after a hundred years of radio, and and maybe looks forward a bit to to do what historians should never do and try and predict where we're where we're going with radio. Well, those both sound like excellent projects, and I hope that uh, when they're completed, we can have you uh, back on the podcast to discuss them. That would be a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Simon Potter, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you.